Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, thanks, Anderson. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to the Primetime COVID Command Center. We do have breaking developments in Afghanistan, and one of the key players in the Trump-Taliban deal is here with a twist, and we will test it. But first, full approval at long last for the Pfizer vaccine from the FDA for those 16 and older. Now, why only those people? Why not under 16? We'll get to all that. Here's the question. Will this get enough people to take the shot so we can stop making ourselves sick? Three in 10 unvaccinated adults said in a recent survey they would be more likely to get vaccinated if one of the options move to full approval. The president says, now's your time. The moment you've been waiting for is here. It's time for you to go get your vaccination and get it today. The FDA approval is the gold standard. Hmm. And approval on his efforts on COVID is the gold standard for his ratings. And they're down. And getting people vaccinated is a big thing for him and for the country. Private companies, by the way, agree that approval was huge. Why? They want to mandate vaccines, and now they believe they have clearance to for their employees. Now, this has been met with a lot of hype. You know, if your employer makes you get a vaccine, that's discriminatory. Legal tests of this will come. It will be shocking if a private business is not allowed to have their employees be vaccinated. And the idea that insisting that you be protected is unfair to the unvaccinated Unless you are immune compromised, not getting vaccinated is what is unfair to the people in your family, your job, and anywhere you go. This is on you, not your employer. The Pentagon also announced earlier that all U.S. service members will now be required to get immunized. Why? Because sick people are weak people. And if that happens in the military, a mass contagion? I could have national security implications. So where are we? Take a look. We're averaging nearly 150,000 new cases a day. Deaths are up to almost 1,000 a day. That's 54% more than a week ago. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is going to be with us tonight with a reality that we're going to all have to accept about what our future looks like and what's going to be happening all over this country, like it or not. Now, a lot of you want to be angry. I'm okay with that. But remember why we have to do all this. Denial by Trump and his administration to start. Messaging that turned his base into a population that wouldn't test, mask up, or get vaccinated. As some perverse sense of strength found in making themselves and others sick. A false exercise of freedom that makes them and others less free. So much mis- and disinformation, so much perversion of what freedom means that even the Pied Piper of the pandemic, Trump himself, can no longer control those who were believed to be his people. 
And you know what? I believe totally in your freedoms. I do. You got to do what you have to do. But I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But you got, no, that's okay. That's all right. You got your freedoms. But I happen to take the vaccine. If it doesn't work, you'll be the first to know. Okay? They booed him. You know why? He's never really been their leader. He was a repeater. He repeated their angst and their animus. And his legacy will be that he literally led people to risk their own lives. And he gave birth to a new wave of demagogues who are misleading just like he did, making people so resistant to reason and relying on lies that they would rather try poison than a real cure. The FDA just literally had to remind some Americans, you're not a horse. You are not a cow. Why? Because some are taking a drug that's given to livestock as an anti-parasitic to treat or prevent COVID. It doesn't work. At least two people have been hospitalized in Mississippi after taking ivermectin. It is a dewormer. It's not a COVID cure. Please don't take it. The state's health department put out a warning saying animal drugs are highly concentrated for large animals and can be highly toxic in humans. And they should have said, and I don't know why they didn't. And this drug is not for COVID. I wonder if politics played into even that. The state's poison control center has been receiving an increasing number of calls in relation to this. Why? Because somewhere on the righty fringe, they said this will do it. Forget about the vaccine. Look, People are literally insisting on making themselves sick. It is like a bad movie that we're all trapped in. Yes, this country is divided. Those who tell you otherwise, I don't get it, but they're wrong. But define the division. It's not left, right? Come on, who defines themselves as that anymore? Those are just ideological extremes for the political class, GOP or Democrat. Who calls themselves that anymore? Those are just teams in a bad game. This country is about the vaccinated and those who choose to put them at risk. And here's the good news. The vaccinated are this country. They are over 50% of every place and face. They've all done the right thing. So how long must the majority wait for the stubborn? How long must kids not get educated because a stubborn few won't learn the lesson about masks? refusing to protect their kids and your kids, especially when they know that kids under 12 can't even get vaccinated. So they need adults. They are dependent on adults to step up. How long must all lives be stilted at home and work, waiting on people who insist on making themselves and others sick? So the question now is, with the FDA approval and the wave of mandates, will that make the difference? Let's take it to a better mind. Former FDA commissioner under Trump, Dr. Stephen Hahn. Good to see you back, Doc. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. FDA approval. Do you believe this could be something that creates a massive catalyst among people who haven't been vaccinated to date? Chris, it's a really important day in our fight against COVID-19. I don't know about the word massive, Chris, but I certainly hope for those who've been waiting for this full approval that this is the impetus for them to get vaccinated. We have clear evidence of the safety and effectiveness of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It's undergone full approval and full vetting by the gold standard, the FDA. You use full there twice. 
The hate parade is already marching and saying they took shortcuts. This isn't real approval. They hedged it just to make you take it. Do you believe any of that? No, I don't, Chris. We heard from the FDA today that the application for the Pfizer BioNTech biological license application, this is for the full approval, was over 300,000 pages. The FDA career staff went through it. They did the number crunching. They know. So not only was this data in the clinical trial that was performed, but we have over several hundred million people around the world vaccinated with this vaccine. What does that tell you? That tells you that we have more data about efficacy and safety than almost any other vaccine in the history of vaccination. The data are clear. The FDA has spoken. The vaccine is safe and effective. Uh, Why isn't Pfizer approved for uh, 12 to 15? It's still under an emergency use authorization for 12 to 15, but is approved 16 and up. Why? Well, the original trial was in 16 and over, so we have data that's at least six months in terms of safety, which is the requirement that the FDA has, that the folks who went through the trial had to have six months of follow-up safety data. And we just recently saw the emergency use authorization for 12 to 15, so we have to wait a little bit more time to collect additional safety data. But Chris, there's, there's no reason to believe that it won't be as safe in that group as it is in 16 and older. We just have to wait for the data to be complete. What do you say to those uh, in right-wing media saying this deworming drug, this could do the trick? Which drug, Chris? Ivermectin, the deworming uh, yes. drug. Right. So we've seen this before, and it's, it's ironic, Chris, a, a drug that indeed is improved, approved by the FDA for certain inf- infections, but for which there's pretty good data to suggest it does not work against COVID-19 and would not be recommended by any medical professional, that that would be chosen over a vaccine that's been studied and looked at in hundreds of thousands of people. So ivermectin is not a drug that anyone should take for COVID-19. It does not appear to work and it may be harmful, particularly if you take the animal version of it. Mm. What do you think is going on with people who would rather push, you know, sophisticated people? They're no Han. Um, But they're somewhere smarter than a Cuomo, but not as smart as a Han. And they would rather push a deworming drug than a vaccine. What does that tell us? You know, I don't know the answer to that question because it doesn't follow the science and the data. And as we have discussed before, this is not about politics. This is about what is this? What do the science and data show us? Mm. And the science and data show us that ivermectin at this point has no benefit for COVID-19 patients either in the prevention or in the treatment, whereas the vaccine clearly has efficacy in the prevention. So I I don't have any understanding of that at all. What I can do is reiterate what I said. We have to stop the politics. We have to follow the science and the data. Dr. Stephen Hahn, thank you for being on the show. Please come back again soon. Thank you, Chris. All right, be well. All right, so at home, we're trying to get people to save themselves. In Afghanistan, we face an equally toxic situation and a key decision. Will Biden extend the Taliban deadline to rescue trapped Americans and allies? Key question, why did America ever agree to any Taliban control over any kind of timeline? Biden blames Trump for that. The last person to head the Pentagon on Trump's watch says Biden has it wrong, and this is his problem. He's here. Let's get after it. Next. All right. We're on the precipice of a big moment. The Pentagon is advising President Biden, you got to make a call by tomorrow to extend the deadline for withdrawal from Afghanistan. 
Word is leaders from the G7 countries are saying you have to do that. Meanwhile, the Taliban calls the August 31st date a, quote, red line. Look, we don't even know how many Americans and allies may be in harm's way there. I know the White House is putting out numbers. We don't know that they're right. Can America really allow the Taliban to dictate anything? How did this even happen? How did we get into this situation? Let's discuss with Donald Trump's former acting secretary of defense who served in combat in Afghanistan, special ops, Christopher Miller. First of all, sir, thank you for your service to the country, especially during that time. I know you know the country and the politics of it well. Appreciate you being here. Chris, I don't think uh, words can describe how honored I am to be on your show. This is the first time I publicly appeared on these matters. And, uh, you know, I was raised in that era where politics stopped at the water's edge. And you brought up earlier about some big news coming out of the White House. And we're going to talk about that. But I just want some news came out just recently about our last POW, our prisoner of war that's being held there, a guy named Mark Ferrix. He was a contractor, a Navy veteran uh, that's still being held by the Taliban. It looks like the Biden administration is going to do everything they can to get him back. And I'm really thrilled by that. And that's that's an example. This is bipartisan, Chris, and I'm not going to be some hectoring political uh, pundit on this one, but I uh, certainly have some experience. I went into Afghanistan on the 5th of December 2001 after three of my men were killed, Cody Prosser, J.D. Davis, and Dan Petitori, and then, of course, I've spent the rest of my professional career involved in this fight and really looking forward to your questions, and hopefully we can educate the American public. That's what I love about your show. You take this seriously, and it's a little more long form as opposed to just sound bites. So over to you, sir. All right. So Let's start at the beginning. The decision to elevate the Taliban and do a deal with them uh, during the Trump administration. Was that a mistake? Were they given too much control for them to be saying anything is a red line? Should America be listening to the Taliban? You, you know, they're a, a notable enemy. They've done obviously extremely well, and you have to respect your enemy. That's one of the fundamental principles of being a military person. You got to talk to your enemy. It took a long, long time. We had opportunities earlier to do that. We didn't take them. And finally, the window opened and we had the opportunity to sit down and talk with them and start hashing out an agreement. So you get, this is how these wars have to end. Insurgencies are just horrifying. They're, they're devastating. And uh, the human cost and the emotional cost. But you got to start talking sometime. I got you with the talk. Um, but bringing them to Camp David, elevating them that way allowing them to somewhat dictate terms and then to continue honoring an agreement even after they didn't. Was that a mistake or how was it not a mistake? I saw it a bit differently. I thought that the agreement that we established with the Taliban was basically the first step, the first phase of an ongoing process. And uh, dealing with the Taliban and negotiations is kind of set piece on that one. We had to get an agreement with the Taliban to start the negotiations uh, to bring the to bring the Afghan government into a President Ghani and his people. So uh, this did not end the way we expected. We thought we still had some leverage and some opportunity to modify. And as has been noted before, this was conditions based and there was an opportunity to uh, renegotiate or to uh, push back if we felt that things weren't going the way they needed to go. So when they weren't going the way they were supposed to go, the Taliban missing deadlines to uh, start talks with the uh, Afghan government, um, the Taliban still supporting al Qaeda, you, you know the particulars. Why wasn't it renegotiated? Why wasn't the deal pulled then? 
because on the at 12.01 on the 20th of January 2021, the Trump administration left office and this was handed over to the Biden administration. And that is in no way, shape or form a criticism of, of the Biden administration. I felt that we gave them plenty of flexibility and room to negotiate if that's what they wanted to do. I haven't been involved in those conversations, obviously, since I left government. So I don't know what went on with the decision to withdraw the way we did and uh, to end our involvement there in the manner that we've seen since uh, last Friday. You had uh, windows before that, though, uh, in terms of what the DOD was warning, um, you know, August, even prior to that. Why did the administration not move then on its own watch? Uh, I'm kind of confused on that one. Uh, I took over on the 9th of November 2020, I was involved uh, from afar as the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, the organization that oversees uh, indicators and warnings and threats for terrorism directed towards the United States. I was I was disconnected at that time from the negotiations, mm. uh, so I, I really can't comment on that. And that's not like some political spin that I'm trying to dodge no, your question. I, I, you're I right. Was, you're right on the dates. I was just wondering you know, so, about your perspective. Let's go to your watch I three told, months told, later. I, go ahead, okay, sorry, go Chris. Ahead. No, 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 Chris. I'm here to hear you. So uh, finish the point. No, I mean, great point, Chris. And when we came in, uh, it was we had the final 72, 73 days of the administration. So wanted uh, the goal was to make sure that the table was set and allow the Biden administration the opportunity to do what they thought best on behalf of the nation. So I felt very comfortable with the agreement. I felt, felt very comfortable with drawing down to 2,500. I want to be like brutally clear. I am violent, viscerally committed to ending the war in Afghanistan, was then and was a, a great supporter of the efforts to reduce our troop presence overseas. So I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like dodge the question. Uh, we had we left with 2,500 troops in country. We actually had 3,500. We had some counterterrorism forces there as well. I felt like we had a, a pretty good force structure there and the opportunity to keep the Taliban at bay. And we were at stalemate at that point. Remember, Chris, we were completely at stalemate when we left and uh, political negotiations needed to continue. The war wasn't going to be won militarily. And, and uh, unfortunately, things didn't go our way. And the opportunity to further negotiations and bring the Ghani, the Afghan government in and negotiations didn't work the way uh, we hoped. The agreement had called for having somewhere around 13,000 uh, in the Doha deal, 13,000 troops. We wound up having uh, a fraction of that, as you just said. For the American people, they always say in polls, we want to get out. Why? Because they don't like the idea of men like you, men and women shedding their blood in a war that they don't think they can win in a place that they don't think is theirs to fight. But I always wondered if they had been asked, are you OK getting out of Afghanistan if you won't be as safe at home afterwards? What do you think of that proposition, Chris? Do you think that America can be as safe at home from terror attacks as it was with a presence in Afghanistan? Chris, I was, I'm shamelessly partisan when it comes down to our special operations forces and our counterterrorism forces. I was enormously blessed and honored to serve with them for quite a period of time. When we defeated the Taliban in 2001, we did that with 200 special operators and paramilitary forces from our intelligence agencies. I felt very 
comfortable that we could maintain pressure on the Taliban and keep the war at a stalemate with the same sort of force structure going on after um, after the negotiations with the Afghan government and the Taliban were complete. So I felt very comfortable that we could arrange a situation where we could keep a stay behind force of commandos and counterterrorism forces, paramilitary forces and intelligence assets there so that we could keep a finger on the pulse of terrorist groups that mean harm to us. So uh, I, I have a little different view on that. We did force structure analysis quite deliberately, and we had a figure of about 800 would work. But you know, when you look at it, like I said, we took the country down and defeated them with 200. I think we could have probably maintained some stiffened the spine of the Af- Afghan National Security Forces with uh, 200 as well. So the Biden administration makes a pretty steady case that Uh, Look, we're saddled with this deal. Um, This is the deadline. This is when we have to get out. And then you are credited with saying, no, no, no. The May 1st deadline was always a ruse. That wasn't real. And uh, Will Ruger just put out a tweet. You know him from being part of the team. I wasn't aware of any alleged ruse and believe the report to be false. It also doesn't fit with President Trump's sense of where things needed to go in terms of uh, Afghan policy and other reporting on the subject. Why did you say Uh, that May 1 wasn't a real date. I really don't like the way that headline read as a ruse. It wasn't a ruse. It was part of an ongoing strategy to negotiate with the Taliban and maintain counterterrorism forces uh, in Afghanistan or immediately uh, very close to Afghanistan. So ruse is an inaccurate term. Uh, the, The agreement that was signed between the United States and the Taliban was phase one of a more ongoing thing. And the, our, our intention all along was uh, in, in the, Af- the Taliban talks about we have the watches and the clocks, but they have the time. So time was uh, we felt we had the ability to uh, move the move the goalposts if we needed to on that one in a way that would remember the Taliban wanted us out. So let's talk about straight negotiating. They wanted us out. We wanted to maintain some sort of counterterrorism presence there. The idea was force the Ghani government into negotiations with the Taliban, then use their traditional loya jirga. That's a huge gathering of Afghan leadership that then uh, establishes a new form of government. Use that. And then there's a new government established. Obviously, the Afghan government would have limited participation in that, but they'd still it would be a coalition. It would be uh, a interim government that then we would have the opportunity to further negotiate with. So the Taliban would go away. The Afghan national government would go away. There's now a new government that uh, our previous agreements are no longer extant or applicable. So now you have a new government to negotiate with. That was our that was our intention. I hear it. And again, for the audience, in case they're just tuning in right now, uh, Chris Miller was the former acting defense secretary under President Trump, but he didn't he wasn't at the table for the initial Doha agreement. Uh, He came in to effectuate it later. And that's my question in terms of shedding insight, Chris, which is, you know, there's nothing in the Doha agreement about getting our allies out. Uh, It doesn't really list that, hey, we're going to take our time. Uh, It puts it on the Taliban that they get to control this. What was your understanding when you came in of where Trump was in terms of being okay with this being as one-sided as it was and why nobody had renegotiated or gone to phase two, to use your language, that this was just a first step. Why had there been no other step taken before you got in? 
Well, Chris, I was involved. I was a, a bit player. I was head of counterterrorism right. for the National Security Council for the president. So I was I don't want to give the impression that I was some major domo or anything like that in the negotiations. But I certainly was tracking it and was aware of what was going on and was privy to the, the longer term plan. And the way I described it, although it was a very close hold negotiations between uh, Ambassador Khalilazad and the Taliban, the, the question you have about the president is, as you saw, he desperately wanted to withdraw forces prior to his departure, but he was also strategically uh, competent and strategically aware that that wasn't possible at the time based on what the Taliban were doing. So, I, I you know, President Trump has spoke extensively about this, and I have no reason to doubt his, his, uh, his statements that he would have uh, handled this differently if the Taliban uh, would have continued this type of, you know, egregious behavior that was in violation of the agreement. See, that's the one part I don't get. And I, I want to give you another yeah. chance to kind of clear this up for people, is that when you look at the timeline and what was in the deal, I'll accept that this was part of what was expected to be a multi-part process, but nothing ever followed. And it was left where you were going to be set up for having a problem getting out of there. And I don't understand why nobody ever took any of the other steps that you are outlining. Well, the Afghan allies and when we get people out, well, that wasn't in there, but we were going to do it later. The deadline, when we'd be out, well, those were all soft points. We were going to deal with it later. Why didn't anybody in the Trump administration do anything better than what was handed to Biden? Uh, I, don't, um, I don't have any idea why the Biden administration didn't go forward with the plan. It's been seven months. I can understand getting your feet on the ground and figuring things out. But at the end of the day, uh, we certainly had the ability to do a responsible drawdown and departure from there and through some additional planning. I, I can't answer that, uh, but we weren't going to execute the final withdrawal. So I have I have no way to answer your question on that. Sorry. No, not on the Biden side, on the Trump side. There was never any renegotiation. There was never any better terms. There was never any um, pushing the Taliban to do what it wasn't doing at the time. Why wasn't that done on Trump's watch before Biden came in? You'd have to ask Ambassador Khalilazad. I assume that he was doing that throughout, even after the, uh, the signing of the Doha agreement. Uh, so you don't see that as being the responsibility of the Trump administration in terms of how to commit uh, or decommit or control the exit of American troops? Oh, no, we were absolutely thinking about it, planning, and I gave you uh, what our intentions were earlier about how we intended to do that. Last thing, uh, extending the date of the 31st, do you think America has any choice but to blow off that date and do what it takes to get its people, its citizens and its allies out of that country? I think we have a, a huge commitment and we've heard the administration and their officials talk about getting all Americans out. So uh, I'm not I, I don't know what exactly uh, is going on right now. I know that uh, we got great Americans over there working it as hard as they can. And, and, and Chris, uh, you know, we got to highlight that this is basically a digital Dunkirk right now. There are enormous amount of Americans that are giving their time, their money, their effort to help with this. There's an opportunity for a public-private partnership. The pieces really aren't in place yet, but I'm really hoping that there's this uh, center set up for civil-military relations. That these folks that have this desire to help America is a wonderful country with uh, hugely, hugely empathetic and sympathetic folks that want to help. So I really hope we do that. Uh, that needs to happen soon. There's some simple issues that need to be addressed. 
there are people with airplanes and capability that are ready to go in and help, but uh, the bureaucracy is slowing that down right now. And we also just need to recognize uh, veterans and specifically our women veterans uh, that have served there so magnificently. This was the first war where we had women in combat and uh, we, not, we need to make sure that they get the services from the Veterans Administration and elsewhere that they're entitled to. You think that you'll be able to get to a position with the Taliban in control where you can have um, private citizens going in and out of there or any kind of joint efforts with that type of despotic group uh, sitting there on the ground up to who knows what kind of violence? Yeah, absolutely. There's, we, we still have some leverage on the Taliban. They want these people out. We, let's help get them out. They, they're a threat to their regime. I don't see any reason at all why they wouldn't be supportive of uh, continuing the evacuation. Uh, I mean, there's absolutely room to negotiate and, and to extend the deadline from my, my perspective. But then again, I'm out of government right now, and I, I don't have that horrible burden on my shoulders, and I really wish them the best because when they do well, America does well, and that's what we all want on this. Chris Miller, I appreciate your service. I appreciate you talking to us about how we got here and what you think the considerations are. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. All right, we'll be right back. A lot of hype about FDA approval of the vaccine. Does it matter? Let's bring in the whiz, Harry Enten. What's the answer? The answer is, yeah, it helps a little bit. Certainly of the things that you would do voluntarily, uh, the full FDA approval certainly helps. You know, if you look at the list of things that uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation asked about a month ago, what do you see? You see the FDA giving full approval. That's a top one. 31 percent, the unvaccinated, more likely to get the vaccine. Uh, that's higher than if a chance to win a million dollars, access to a mobile clinic or free child care. I've looked at all of it. It's one of the best on there. But here's the thing about the full FDA approval, what it will really do. What it does is it gets those people who are thinking about getting the vaccination much more likely to get it. So if you wanted the vax as soon as possible, 79% of those folks say it's more likely to get us the vaccination. 49% who were saying, you know, we're going to wait and see how the vaccine works. Even 30% who said that they'd only get it forced, it makes them more likely. But among those who were the definitely nots, just 8% say it'd be more likely. So it's really about pushing those people over the edge who were thinking of getting it to actually get the vaccine. So you think it takes a carrot and stick? I think it takes a carrot and stick. That's exactly right. So if we were, in fact, to team this up with a vaccine mandate, what do we do? Number one, by giving this full approval, that makes vaccine mandates much more likely. But more than that, if in fact, let's say you say, okay, we're going to have this full FDA approval, and then employers basically say you have to, in fact, get vaccinated if you want to keep working there. Look at that. 51% of unvaccinated workers say they will will get the vaccine or more likely to get it. Just 43% say no, and they'll quit their job. So I think that if you team this up, you team up a full FDA approval, along with a full um, as long along with a vaccine mandate. I think that's the ticket to success. Harry Anton, very good on time. And thank you for making the points that matter. Appreciate you. The Wizard of Odds, Harry Anton. My pleasure, sir. All right. So look, vaccinated or not, you want the truth? Here it is. COVID's not going anywhere. Dr. Sanjay Gupta gives us the reality and what we can do about it next. How big a deal? is the FDA approving Pfizer's vaccine. Let's bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Good to see you. Uh, what do you believe the net effect of this move could be? I, I think it's actually gonna be uh, you know, somewhat significant, maybe not right away, but I think there's three categories of people that are gonna be affected by this. People, as Harry was just talking about, that have sort of been on the line, uh, maybe about 30% of people who said, look, it felt too new, and now with approval, I'll go ahead and get it. 
Keep in mind as well that as part of the approval, Pfizer will now get to market and advertise uh, this vaccine. So you're going to see, probably see ads popping up, Chris, basically showing you what life is like if you get the vaccine versus if you don't. That might have an impact. But it's the bottom one that I think is going to have the biggest impact. Universities are already doing this. Big institutions. You heard about the, the VA, uh, University of Minnesota. So the mandates w- will certainly have an impact, I think. Let me just show you real quick snapshot of the country in terms of where we are this pie chart. Um, we have about 51% that have been vaccinated, another 9% that have been partially vaccinated. It's the red, 25% that are eligible but are not yet vaccinated. So that's the population of people, about 80 million people that could be potentially affected by this. Mm. You know, look, my thing is that this country is divided, but it's not red, blue, Democrat, GOP. It's vaccinated and unvaccinated. And I got to tell you, up until this point, it's all been about be nice to the unvaccinated. Don't don't shame them. Let them learn on, enough. Uh, they're holding up life for everybody else. And now you just wrote in an op ed something that's popping a lot of eyes. But it was a point you had to make, Doc. This is going nowhere. COVID will be with us six months, 12 months, 18 months. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's becoming endemic. That's that's the word that people use. And I also put in there, though, five strategies about how to sort of dance or coexist with this uh, with this virus. We've, we've, we've been talking about them for some time. Uh, vaccinations. Um, first of all, I got my vaccine card here. I think we can need to have some some way of actually proving that people are vaccinated. These cards, I mean, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous that you, ha- you have the app up in New York. Mm-hmm. How are people traveling from state to state? How are they going to show that? That's going to be a point uh, that they're going to have to address. The right kind of masks. Delta changed the equation, Chris. This is far more transmissible. So surgical masks are good. This is my go-to mask, which is a KN95 mask here, the black one. That's the kind of mask that is pretty easy to use. Very, very effective in terms of filtering out particles. And then this is the N95 mask you hear a lot about. This is supposed to be fit tested to actually put it on. But one thing to sort of look for is if you have the loops going around your head, you're going to get a better seal. Regardless, if you're going to be in an environment where there's a lot of viral transmission, you're going to need to wear, the, wear, wear masks. Ventilation. Everyone talks about this, Chris. I don't think very many people really know what it means. I want to show you something here. I just set this up. This is a CO2 monitor. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a a cheap man's version of actually measuring ventilation. How much carbon dioxide, which we all breathe out, is in the air? You want it to be somewhere around 1,000. Mine's, uh, what, 1055? I guess you're making me a little nervous, Chris. I'm breathing out more carbon dioxide. (laughs) But this this is something you can do to try and get a sense of just how much the ventilation is in your area. Antigen testing, Chris. We talk a lot about the vaccines, but antigen tests, something that you can do on a regular basis. There are several authorized antigen tests now. You could do this daily if you needed to. And this is if you are feeling fine, but you want to know if you are potentially contagious. That's what those tests are good for. I feel fine, but am I going to be potentially contagious to other people? So the, the, those are the big things, Chris. Overall, you just we need to reevaluate risk nowadays. You know, uh, uh, are you still going to do indoor dining in an area mm-hmm. where there's lots of viral transmission? Maybe not now. Viral transmission goes down. We can think about it then. It's going to be kind of like thinking of the weather in some ways, uh, at least for the next uh, you know several months. Mm. That's if people accept the reality, and that's been the sticking point. But I got to hand it to you, Sanjay. You've been putting out the message, you've been keeping it real, and you've been right all along. So thank you for giving us the right information at the right time. Thank Be you. well, brother. You got it. You too. All right. So uh, did you hear what happened tonight in Congress? 
there are key members. They got a briefing from the White House on the mass evacuation effort in Afghanistan. One of them is here. I want to ask, do they believe the numbers coming out of the White House? Next. The White House briefed the House Intel Committee on the situation in Afghanistan, including my next guest, Representative Jackie Speer. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us tonight. Good to be with you, Chris. In terms of the numbers of how many Americans are still there, how many allies, uh, how much confidence do you have in the numbers the White House are using? Well, I'm not sure that any of us really know. Uh, there's no requirement that a U.S. citizen has to check in with the U.S. Embassy when they come into a country. So what we know is what has been given to us by persons who have contacted either the embassy or congressional offices. And I think at this point, our focus has to be in getting those who have contacted us out of Afghanistan. Do you have any concern that the White House is uh, using smaller numbers to make it an easier task? I don't know one way or the other. And at this point, really, Chris, the important thing is to get all of these people out, to get those that were the interpreters and the drivers and their families out and to get every U.S. citizen out who wants to leave. And I think we have a Herculean task ahead of us. Uh, we have now um, been able to evacuate 28,000. Uh, we have eight more days left in which we will have to evacuate uh, the rest of the people. And, you know, the pictures that we see at the airport and Kabul are pretty daunting. So it's important that we stay focused on what we can do and must do. Right. Well, obviously the must is getting them all out. That's why the, the number matters. But to how you get that done, one, do you believe that a Taliban deadline should be respected? And what do you think of the security situation at the airport from the briefing? Well, I'm concerned about the status of the airport, and I think that we have to make sure that if that deadline is extended, it's negotiated with the Taliban, and I'm sure President Biden um, has that in mind, because that date is certain. And if we go beyond that August 31st date, uh, then there could be repercussions. So it has to be negotiated. What do you think about the security situation at the airport? And what do you know about the status of negotiations? I don't know anything about the status of negotiations. And as to the security of the airport, we have a lot of remarkable Afghan people who have been helping us and have worked very hard and worked with our uh, various uh, military there. Uh, it is dangerous. I don't think there's any question about that. And we have to do everything in our power to secure the airport for as long as we are there. And just to understand, uh, Representative, the status of the negotiation of the deadline wasn't part of the briefing? It was not. Did you, anybody ask what's going on with the deadline? Yes. And they said, we're not going to tell you? They said that they weren't um, familiar with uh, what was being negotiated. So the people at the White House didn't know what was being negotiated with the deadline? We, we, we didn't speak to people from the White House. We spoke to um, representatives that would normally come before the Intelligence Committee. I got you. Are you going to ask for follow-up on that? Because it pretty is the key determination right now, right? Absolutely. And we will continue to debrief on this issue. And it's important for us to stop pointing fingers right now and get our American citizens and those Afghans who have helped us out of the country. I hear you 100 percent. That's why I'm so worried about the number. 
uh, that you know you got to know how many people you're trying to get so that you'll be able to figure out how many of them you do get and how many are left behind. Because let's be honest, uh, as you know better than I, the Taliban in charge of Afghanistan, you're not going to hear as much from that country uh, once we leave in terms of who's left behind. How concerned are you that America will not get this done? Well, I'm, at this point, I'm not looking at uh, whether we're going to get it done. We have to get it done. I'm also very concerned about the women and girls mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. I think we have a femicide that's about to happen in that country. Uh, it doesn't have to be any, in, in anyone's um, memory not to remember the fact that there was a stadium used to yes. stone people to death, and women in particular, and to shoot people at point-blank range. So I don't think the Taliban has changed its spots. And I think it's uh, very important for us to do everything we can to get uh, women and girls out that want to get out. Absolutely. And it'll be very interesting to see what the posture is of all allies about what is done uh, to females, old and young in that country when we're gone. Congresswoman, thank you so much. I know it's been a very long day. Appreciate you taking this opportunity to inform the audience. Good to be with you, Chris. All right. We'll be right back. Got to watch Afghanistan, got to see what happens in this country. You know, and both of them are knitted together by a principle of trust but verify. The numbers, the efforts in Afghanistan, the ability to take a safe vaccine here, and then the responsibility to do what's right for yourself, your family, and the people in your community. Will we get it right? We'll see. Thank you for watching. Don Lemon tonight with the big star, D. Lemon, now. Got a translator who came over here, helped the, the U.S. military in Afghanistan, came over as a teenager, promised to get his family here. He is working on that now. I have some good news. It's not quite the end of of the line for them, meaning getting here, but I have some good news to share. That translator is going to join us in just a bit. But also, Chris, what you and I have been talking about, really what you have been, I have to say, probably more than any of us on the network saying, you need to get this FDA approval. You need to get this FDA approval. If you get the FDA FDA approval, it will help people, um, you know, want to get the vaccine. I, you know, I've been saying, I don't think it's going to make a difference. Maybe we'll see where people are, if they're really believing this thing that they're saying about, well, as soon as we get FDA approval, we'll get the vaccine. So now we have it. What's your excuse now? Well, they shouldn't have one. Uh, Now, look, the only carve out is that they didn't approve it for kids yet. Right. Um, And that's because they don't have enough time and data and they have to follow the rules, which should be reminded to people when they say, uh, hey, I heard that the FDA approval was shortcut. It wasn't shortcut. It wasn't short circuited. I told you that was going to happen, didn't I? We had a conversation today. But look, I mean, stupid is stupid is always obvious. What I'm saying (laughs) is that, you know, that the FDA commissioner under Trump was just on and says he doesn't believe that. So. There's your boy uh, saying that he doesn't accept that. So then don't listen to it if that's your inclination of, uh, you know, kind of political prism. But my point is this. This country is divided. It is the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. The vaccinated are a growing majority. They are Republican, Democrat, left, right, all the things that nobody really calls themselves in real life. But the media and the political insiders use. That's who needs to be spoken to by leaders. We don't have to sit around worrying about offending the unvaccinated. Uh, that's how we made ourselves sick, not how we'll make ourselves better. People who are getting injecting drugs for animals and horse and people telling them to. Oh my God. What person? You know, you talk about like you know <laughs> cancel culture and who to shame. Ivermectin, a dewormer 
Really? They are shaming themselves. No one has to shame them. They're shaming themselves. No, they uh, need to be shamed. Yeah. They need to be called out and shamed, yeah. brother. But I look forward to you making your witness. I'll see you in a bit. I love you. I love you, dude. And I'm going to get to it. The- Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.